Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today our message is brought to us by our Minister of Music, Dr. Garth Baker Fletcher. Join us for the message, Strength to Do Impossible Things. Our scriptures today come from Psalms, Isaiah, and Philippians. First one is Psalm 3, verses 1 through 4. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying to me, there is no help for, yours, for you and God. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy hill. Our second reading is from Isaiah 41, verses 1 through 10. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the people renew their streak. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for, for judgment. Who has roused a victor from the east, summoned him to his service? He delivers up nations to him and tramples kings under foot. He makes them like death with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely, scarcely touching the path with his feet. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am first and will be left the last. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The lands of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Each one helps the other, saying to one another, Take courage. The artisan encouraged the goldsmith, and the one who smooths with the hammer encouraged the one who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And they fasten it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous, victorious right hand. Our last scripture comes from Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 through 13. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. Not that I am offering to be in, in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being well-fed and going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you so much, Kathy, for that word. From the words. Words from the word. <clears throat> I'm going to bring out my water because <laughs> sometimes when I get excited, my voice gets so dry, I just can't take it. Would you join me in prayer? 
Dear God, I thank you so much for your love, for your light, for your wisdom, which we need so much of in these dark and dreary and sometimes hazardous days. Bless us with your peace, we pray, and that the words of my mouth and the inspiration of my heart be acceptable and pleasing and edifying in thy sight. Amen. Strength to do the impossible. In this time of great social divisions and outright culture wars, it is important for the people of God <clears throat> to know what God is saying to us right now. <clears throat> what is God saying to us on July 2nd, 2023? this moment, how are we to react to the news that we hear and is all around us, news filled with angry voices that pit one group against another, conservative voices anxiously decrying anything that does not follow the view that the United States of America is the greatest nation ever with the greatest history, unlimited promises, and a bright future. Any kind of studies, be they black history, LGBTQ studies, or even Native American history, anyone that dares to draw facts that counter the super rosy, hyper positive view of the United States, they deem is harmful, is evil, and to some, ought to be silenced. If you are not conservative these days, then these last few days have been very difficult days indeed. The supermajority of a conservative Supreme Court justices have reversed rulings that have stood for over half a century in America. They have reversed Roe v. Wade, severely limiting abortion access, and so doing, severely limiting maternal services. They have reversed affirmative action rulings and eliminated race as a factor at all higher education institutions. They have reversed recent LGBTQ rights gained by valuing religious freedom of speech as more important than equal access to services. I could go on. But I know that you have come to hear about what God is saying to us at this moment with all of these things clamoring around us, grabbing our attention, and playing with our emotions. I would like for us to consider three important things. When Karen and I went to school together, we had a wonderful mentor who recently passed named Karen, uh, Katie Geneva Cannon. And Katie taught us that every sermon has three points. Three. If it has more than three, you ain't going to remember any. <laughs> and then she would use colorful metaphors. She would, say, she would say, well, you know, the first part of a sermon is the porch. It's like where you meet the people and, you, you know, you talk like you do in a house. She said, but then when you get into the house, that's where the three points are. She says, now, if you're a black preacher, of course, you never stay in the house, but you go out the back door. 
where it's just open lawn and you just have your way in the end. But I'll spare you all the lawn today. <laughs> Had to preach a few more times before we experiment and get out to that lawn. So the first point is going to be, and they're all A's. The first is account. The second is adjust. And the third is accept. Account, adjust, and accept. Say it with me. Account, adjust, accept. Okay. When we do these three things, we open ourselves up to that power, the wisdom, the peace, and the promise of God's presence in our lives. And during the season of Pentecost, where we celebrate the presence of God's Holy Spirit in our lives, in the church, and even in our society, it is crucial that the church presents a message of hope and uplift that transforms the feelings of fear, dread, and defeat that are so rampant in our society into feelings of strength, hope, and promise. In my heart, I believe that we Christians are not called to simply endure difficult seasons, to do what folks say when you ask them, how are you doing? They say, well, I'm making it. Mm-mm. God's folks are not supposed to go, well, I'm making it. We are supposed to demonstrate that we have the strength to do impossible things. 100 years ago, it was impossible to imagine that anyone could ever fly to the moon. 100 years ago, it was impossible for Methodists to imagine a day when African Americans, white Americans, Latinx Americans would belong to the same church and worship together regularly. Amen? Amen. And even 70 years ago, during the Civil Rights Movement, where everything was moving out and, and impossible things seemed to be happening, Americans never could have believed that within a generation, Americans would elect and re-elect an African-American president. That was impossible. Impossible things can and do happen. As God's people, we need to learn how to demonstrate our strength of faith, strength of hope, and enduring strength to envision things that everybody else can't even imagine happening and would say no to, and would say, stop. It cannot ever be. So, point one, account. We have to begin to account for something. When we say we account for something, what do we do? We mean that we are doing what? We're taking it into our minds that this is important information or necessary information. Taking account means that we are gathering the data, bringing together all the facts we can in order to to know what our options are, how we can react successfully to the situation. When you're driving in your car and you notice that the fuel gauge is hovering close to the E and not the F, we know, gathering that information, that if we do not stop and refuel, we'll get an ugly surprise, huh? <laughs> yes. And we take account of how our bodies get when we put on some extra weight, don't we? See, during the pandemic, I admit, I gained over 50 pounds. Ate too much, exercised too little. 
When I went to put on my clothes, I had a rude surprise. Oh, I see that some of you might have had that same rude surprise. <laughs> Don't feel badly. It is a national problem that everybody seems determined to overcome. Gym and exercise programs are just flourishing, going down to this exercise gym and this program and this bargain deal, I'm telling you. I could go right down the street and go to three or four gyms, and all of them are promising $10 a month charge. It sounds wonderful. We're straining our bodies, and we are even groaning, trying to get back into shape. Well, God wants us to take an account of what God has always told believers to do in times of great distress and trouble. Psalm 3 states it beautifully when it says, and do you have, do you have Psalm 3 by any chance? Oh, do, may I read Psalm 3? Sure. I'm not going to read the whole psalm. I'm just going to read the very last verse that was read. Here, I got it. Thank you. Thanks. Psalm 3 states in the third verse a beautiful thing. It's, it says, But you, O Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. Oh, King James has it nicely. Some people don't like King James, but every once in a while the King James hits it just right. It was saying, But thou, O Lord, art my shield. And the lifter of my head. I like that. See, this psalm was written by King David as he was fleeing from his rebellious son, Absalom. You might remember the story of Absalom and David. Absalom was his beautiful son. He was his wise son. He was his perfect son. And Absalom rebelled against his dad because dad had sat back and was just leaning back, chilling when things were going wrong. And the worst possible thing in a family could happen. And you know, some of us think we have some bad things, but I'll tell you, David's family had just about the worst thing that could happen. See, Absalom's brother, and I want to make sure I get his name, Abnon, really, really, really liked his sister, Tamar. After a while, his light became an obsession, and the obsession became a fantasy. And one day, he grabbed Tamar, and he had his way with Tamar. And then it says something that only the Bible can say beautifully and powerfully and chillingly. And then it says, and with the same love that he loved her, he hated her afterwards imagine what that must have been like. Rape within your family. And yet I'm sure some of you know that that, in fact, is what happens in some families. And it happened in David's family. But David was the king. And when word got out that this had happened, David got angry with his son, but he didn't do anything to his son. And Tamar went and ran to her big brother Absalom's house and stayed there, and it says she was just despondent and feeling terrible. After two years of inaction, Absalom had enough. He manufactured something, and then he said, well, you know, let's have everybody come over to my house. And they said, no, we can't, we're too busy. Well, I tell you, well, why don't we just ask Amnon to come over. Well, Amnon came over, and Absalom put a sword in him and killed him. 
David got a false report that all of his children had been killed by Absalom. And he thought that Absalom had gone rogue on him. And he was very upset. But then the word got back finally before too long that, in fact, only one person had been killed, and that was Amnon. And when David was, David was so out of it, he didn't get it. He said, why would Absalom do that? He said, don't you remember two years ago when you didn't do anything about what happened in your family? Well, David did not take care of business. And I could go and spend time telling you that whole story, but needless to say, the seed of anger that started in Absalom grew into a full-blown rebellion. After David and he sort of, sort of reconciled, he began to act as a judge. Now, judge means that you sit at the, at the gate and, and people bring their problems. You know, like, this sheep was found in, in this part of the territory, and I say it's my territory. No, I say it's my territory, and the judge decides whose territory it was. This was the king's job. But David was so lax, he let his son Absalom do the judge work. And Absalom was so powerful looking, so beautiful. Absalom must have been one heck of a man. He must have been Billy D. Williams or Rock Hudson or somebody. I mean, he just, you know, I mean, the people just thought he was the most beautiful and wise and person in the kingdom. So when Absalom decided that he wanted to rise up against his father, they kind of supported him. And Absalom was still furious with his father, and his father recognized that he, in order to survive, would have to run, and he did. So this psalm was written by a running away David. Now, the story of David and Absalom is a sad story. And I say this to you because David is the most, one of the most interesting characters. David committed murder. He f manufactures a murder with his kingly power after he has taken advantage of a soldier's wife when the soldier was off. He should have been off with the soldiers fighting. He wasn't. That's a whole Bathsheba thing that you might have heard about before. Okay? Well, David is a problem because David is known to be beloved by God. And God loved David so much that God put people around David that would protect David from David's worst side. In the end, David was triumphant over David's forces, because remember, David had been a guerrilla warfare person. That's how he got the throne. He was an excellent commander. And the people told Absalom, it would be best not to fight your dad. You know, you're a kid that grew up in the palace. He's a kid that grew up on the street. And his folks probably could take your folks really easily. Well, Absalom had gotten full of himself. And his rebellion failed. And he was killed. It's a long and ugly tale, and sometime if you want me to, I'll preach just about David and Absalom and that whole situation with David. But you see, at this moment that he was writing this psalm, going back to Psalm 3, 
he had to take account of his fear. He was running for his life. He had lost the support of many of his soldiers and officials. They were lining up against David in favor of Absalom at this moment, and they were noting that the amazing accomplishments of David seemed to be finished, and that the new accomplishments were going to be with his son. And his enemies were saying, there is no deliverance from God that will save you, David. But in the midst of all that, verse 3 reminds us that David remembers how God had always been his shield of protection. David remembers how God had been his glory. Now, I'm going to just use one Hebrew word today, kavod. Say that, kavod. Kavod is a word that they say, the glory of God. They usually say, kavod Adonai, the glory. And the glory of God is the weight, the, the, the heaviness, the splendor, the sense of awe that surrounds God. Well, so when David said, God, you have been my kavod. He was saying, whatever significance I have is because of your glory. Isn't that beautiful? See, when we get under God's glory, then that should shine from us. David had forgotten who he was. He was God's beloved. David had acted outside of his calling. He had lost his remembrance, but in verse 3, he remembers God you are my glory. You're my splendor. You're, you're the greatness. And when David took an account of God, he remembered himself, his kingship, his authority. That was not based on himself, but on who? God. The kavod of God is behind every wonderful, fantastic, amazing, and sometimes unbelievable positive event in our lives. You and I cannot manufacture it, but we can experience it. Now, Isaiah 41.10 tells us something that we need to take into account when it says, do not fear, do not be anxious, do not be dismayed. Oh, my. Why? Because God is the one who strengthens us and helps us and even upholds us when we take a biblical accounting of what God is saying to us, whether we are a dethroned David king, a King David fleeing for his life, or a frightened country wondering whether or not God is really with us, Isaiah 41.10 reminds us that God is the strength of our life. God is the helper in our life. God is the one who is upholding us no matter what we are going through. Taking an account of God, God has a whole lot of things that he wants us to remember, a lot of information that we need to gain. Oh, friends, we talk too much about the miraculous intervening God. I'll say that again. I think we talk too much about God as a miracle worker. And I say that's a cheap and false way of limiting God. Why do I say that? Because, see, when we limit God to one or two things, we limit our ability to see God's actual intervention and upholding in our lives. Sometimes in the worst situations, we get a clearer understanding of what it means 
Suppose that's the strength of God. I'll say that again. If God is truly with us, remember in Advent we say, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means what? God with us. God is with us, helping us. God is with us, upholding us. When everything else seems to be breaking down, God is with us. By giving us the strength we need to face any and all events and situations. But, but we could stay on this point forever, but I would just want you to take that accounting. When we account for what God is in our lives, we see that God is not distant and not caring. God is in every single situation. Everyone. And that's hard to accept, which then gets me to my second point, because I don't want to jump on to the third point, except that's the third point. The second point is this. In order to be truly strong enough to do the impossible things, we not only need to account for um, who God and what God does, but we need to adjust ourselves to God's plans. And I'm going to read this for you again because this was my mama's favorite verse, Philippians 4 and 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent, or praiseworthy, think on these things. And then a, another verse says, he adds a little thing about himself, and then he says, if you do all this, the God of peace will be with you. What is the Apostle Paul asking for us? Why do we need this laundry list of virtuous ideas? Well, see, we need to focus on these, this list because it gives us a way of adjusting our attitudes. My mom was a counselor and a teacher for the Cleveland Public School System for over 45 years. And Mama Sue came along at a time where, uh, if you remember the, I've forgotten the name of the lady, she was a famous atheist. She had sued, well, you know it, all right. Yes, indeed, she took away, you know, prayer in school and the result of the decision wasn't just prayer, but all religion was kind of pushed, uh, pushed out of school. And, you know, that was, that was really something. But my mama was clever. She was a Christian. And she said, well, you know, we can, we can add things. We just don't need to have the word God in it. So she took this verse, whatever is true, noble, right, lovely, and she made a big poster in her office. And when kids would get in fights with one another, and they'd be just angry with one another, and she'd sit one down on one side of the office, and she'd hit the other on the other side, and she'd have them read that. And they'd be reading it, and they would say, well, I don't know why I need to read that. They said, she said, read it again. And they read it again. And then she would say to them, I want you to personalize that. I want you to look and be able to say to the other person what you think is true about them, what is noble about them, what is right, what is pure. <laughs> and you know, the kids fought it, but she would just keep right on talking. She said, yeah, you're not going anywhere until you all can say this. And I know that you all have thought about it. My mother made them confront 
not only their anger and their tiff, but she made it, she wanted them to adjust their viewpoint. You can't adjust your viewpoint simply by saying, well, you, are, you, you just need to, you need to get right. No, no. You have to work on the inside and change that person's mind. My mother did this, and I was raised in a house where this is what we did. My mother said that you have to adjust your reality and your perception of a person, because if you do that, you will be a stronger person in the end, and you will be able to see impossible things and do impossible things. I was glad that she did that. I'll say more about that. I remember one of the exercises that I was talking about my mother to somebody, and, and she said, she turned around and she said, all right, Garth, I know you have some problems with President Ronald Reagan. What's true about him? Oh, he's a, no, what's true about Ronald Reagan? So I had to say, well, what's true about Ronald Reagan? What was pure? What was noble? What was praiseworthy? I got all the way through it. When she did, when she heard me do that, she smiled. Little did I know that that ability to say good things about people that I don't necessarily agree with would land me in my first position in Lincoln, Massachusetts, in a church that was right down the street from George W. Bush's brother. So I said some very, very nice things about President Bush <laughs> to a predominantly Democratic crowd. And the net, by the next Sunday, the word had gotten out that that new black guy at the church said good things. So I got invited to come on over his house. I was like, oh, no, I don't want to do that. I said, no, no, no. <laughs> See, I, I had adjusted, but I hadn't adjusted to real strength and impossible. I'm sorry I didn't get to know George Bush's daughter. I'm sorry that I shirked from that because I found out that he was really a nice guy. I wasn't a supporter of H.W.'s son, W. But then I wound up singing in the HPUMC, Highland Park UMC choir, and we would sing in the 8.30 service, and W would always come to the 8.30. And I had a chance to meet the man, this man that I disliked what he had done. I kind of agreed. I don't agree with much that Kanye says, but I thought Kanye said it right when <laughs> with the Louisiana thing. I know it was a very famous intervention where uh, people were asking for money for the victims in the Superdome and everything. Remember when, uh, when Katrina came along? And Kanye got up and said, I don't think George Bush likes black people. Ooh, people got mad about that. You know, so I, that's, that's kind of the way I felt. He must not like black people. Well, I found out from George, uh, I found out from the people at Highland Park that he was one of the friendliest members in the church, that he was kind and considerate. And then I found out something that really blew my mind. He and Bill Clinton share a particular trait that made them so popular and reelectable. They both have a photoactive, photogenic memory. And both of them have such a high EQ, not IQ, EQ, that they will remember facts about your life. So, you know, 
both Bill Clinton and W, when they meet you and you're in the line, you know, you're, the line is forever. And what's your name? Okay, your name's Norma. Well, tell me about this. Well, I'm worried about my husband. Oh, okay, well, I'll be praying for you. All right, Norma would see W three months later. He'd be coming out of the line. He'd be looking, he'd smile. Hey, Norma, how are you? Well, hey. <laughs> I mean, if somebody remembers not only your name, but then guess what he'll say? How's your husband? Why I'm doing? Is he all right? I remember you were concerned about him. He was in the hospital, right? I mean, amazing memories. This is what elected Bill Clinton. This is what elected W. If I hadn't learned to adjust my viewpoint, I'd be stewing in an unnecessary place. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that I agree with everything that he does. It does mean that I see the riches and the fullness of the person and not just their political position. Well, y'all are quiet. <laughs> what was my first point? Take account. The second one is what? Adjust my thinking. And the final one, but I don't want to hold you up forever. I'm giving a long Baptist sermon. <laughs> Forgive me. As we move towards developing the strength to do impossible things, we have to combine what we account and how we've adjusted our perspectives into what we accept in our spiritual practices and our peace. Adjusted and accounted Christians can become supernatural human beings because she or he can accept all the things that come into our lives as part of the peace of God. Peace, by the way, does not mean that everything is cool and I'm happy. Peace is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of justice. Martin Luther King, say that again. Peace is not just sitting back and saying, hey, everything's cool. Peace is not the absence of conflict, but it is the presence of justice. Christian peace is always hard-fought accounting of factors and adjustment of things so that what they can be true, honorable, lovely, right, virtuous, excellent, and praiseworthy. All of those things are the opposite of hatred, exclusion, put-down, bullying, murder, hatred. We cannot have peace until we actually put all those virtues in Philippians 4, 8 into our practice, and the practice gets into our heart. In verse 13 of Philippians 4 come the famous words of a spiritually powerful individual, the Apostle Paul, where he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He said, I can live in a prosperity or want. I can live in any and every circumstance. And thus, I have the secret of being content in plenty and in want. Our country wants us to accept the capitalist teaching that only by having things can we be happy. That's why we're so unhappy. Capitalism never has enough. It's a lesson I've heard over and over again from some of the wealthiest persons in the world that things do not bring us happiness or content. In that first place that I was an a, 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 a associate minister, a youth minister, it was in the, the wealthiest suburb 
suburbs of uh, Boston and the oldest suburbs. They had old money. They didn't have money that it has got this generation. I mean, the Garrison family lived there. William Lloyd Garrison's family. They belonged to that church. They had, they had property that went on so far, all you could see around their house was trees. They had real money. But even with all the money that was in that place, their kids were drug addicted. Their daughters had that, it's what they used to call the wasting disease, but really uh, it's a psychological thing it's where you waste away yourself, anorexia nervosa. Yeah. And, and, and we were shocked. We were like, wait a minute, this kid has everything. I mean, this kid has, you know, a summer house on the Cape. And then what East they call it summering. <laughs> I'm going to go summer on the Cape. I mean, they had, you know, they had everything, but they didn't have happiness. They weren't at peace with themselves. The Bible says that no matter how much we accumulate, we're never going to be happy just accumulating everything that capitalism says. Capitalism in its rawest, most unfettered form has the potential to destroy us because it promotes the false ideal that you have to accumulate continually to be happy. The Bible says that when we accept the peace and presence of God in our lives, we learn the secret of being content. But content does not mean to stop yearning for justice or for beauty, or for the right relationships between. Being content means that I am at peace in my spirit so that I can go out and do the work of justice. It means I'm at peace with what I, where I am now so that I can go out and be more loving. It means that I'm accepting the truth that Christ is the center of my life. No matter what I am doing, no matter what I have, no matter who I know, no matter where I'm going. I have learned that Jesus is the heart of my contentment. When I'm content, I'm focused on Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. We may want a more just world, but we will not achieve that without a spiritual foundation. It's not an either-or situation. It means that we have to work on both the justice and the spiritual foundation. When I've accepted that in Christ I can do all things, I know that whatever I am doing as God's child, if I have taken a true accounting of God's goodness and I have adjusted my vision to see the very best in every and in all situations, I can readily accept what God is doing in and through me right now. It doesn't mean that I want to stay in poverty if I'm in poverty, but it means that I have accepted that God is with me, and I know God has a plan for me, and I just can't wait to do it. In Christ, I am strengthened to do all things. I'm able to do all things and to do much more than I could ever imagine. When I was 15, I came down with a condition called lupus. And I was lying in a hospital bed, and they had spent a month, and they said I had everything in the moon, and all of them were wrong. <laughs> Finally, one day, eight doctors came in, eight doctors in white coats, and they all looked solemn. And they said, son, 
you have systemic lupus erythematosus. I was thinking, you know, it's kind of like, how is it? That's kind of a song title, lupus erythematosus. Well, if I'd been a little bit older, if I'd been in 1972, 1992, I would have made a rap on it, you know, lupus erythematosus, you know? I mean, but I could tell from the way they were saying it, that was something serious. And then they paused. And I thought to myself, well, I guess they're going to tell me where, you know, how long I have to live. So I said, so, is there any, no cure. And I said, well, so am I going to die? And they said, you probably won't live to 20. I was 15. But I had a mother who adjusted my vision. She told me to accept what she couldn't change. We couldn't change the lupus, but we could change Garth inside. I could adjust. I could account for what I could. What gifts did I have? Well, I, I liked music, and I, I, I liked people, and I was a Christian. Okay, build on that. And I had to adjust my attitude. So when everybody else thought that I was going to die, I didn't. When I was 20, went to the doctors, and they said, well... You've had been really, really sick because I was in and out of the hospital. This is before I met Karen. And I said, well, you probably won't live to be 25. I met Karen when I was 25. When I saw the doctors at 25, they told me that I might live to be 30, but I was still very, very, very much in jeopardy. When I talked to people that knew me when I was in high school and in college, they can't believe that I'm still alive. They can't believe that I'm married. They can't believe that I have three children. But that strength that operated in my life to keep me all these years, I'm 67 and a half. This Thanksgiving, I'll be 68. After I married Karen and we moved all around the place and we settled in California, when I got to California, my body looked at that beach and those mountains and said, ah. And it was just like the lupus said, hey, listen, I'm going to go chill on Laguna Beach here. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to bother you. You know? I mean, lupus people aren't supposed to hang out on the beach. Karen, ask Karen. We would go to the beach every week. We went to the beach. We went to climb mountains. We had a great time. Lupus said, well, heck, this is a good way to be. The lupus just went into what they call remission. You know, doctors have a word for everything. It's not that I'm cured, but see, my mind was cured long before my body started acting cured because I had adjusted and been adjusted by faithful people that put into practice Philippians 4 and 8. So in Christ, I am strengthened to do everything. Not because I am so strong, but because I am a witness that God will do the impossible because God is my strength and my song. Amen. Amen. Next Sunday, the pastor will be back with a new sermon series on the Holy Spirit. And so now, let us pronounce the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord 
cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope today's service was meaningful for you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we'll start our new sermon series, The Holy Spirit, The Fire of God. You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, our YouTube channel, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. God bless you in the week ahead, and we'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church. Thank you.